Let's take our Bibles and turn to a passage that we alluded to, Matthew 26, and we'll also read from John chapter 16 in a moment. I'm speaking on the subject, Christ's loneliness in Gethsemane. By the way, young people, if you uh, are permitted by your parents to go to junior church or children's church, you may do so now, even while I'm talking, and uh, we'll let you, let you leave. Thank you for taking in the song service with us and other things. We appreciate that. Christ's loneliness in Gethsemane, I'm departing from the series on the Sermon on the Mount to help prepare our hearts for communion today. The message won't be quite as long as usual. How quickly we forget, don't we, what Jesus endured for us on the cross of Calvary. But not just on the cross, what He endured before He made it to the cross, how He agonized, how He sweat blood in Gethsemane. Have you ever considered what would we do without these reminders with the Lord's table and really reflecting on the suffering of our Savior? We need to consider Him who endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself. We aren't, aren't going to sing this particular song today, but we often do, and it makes an impression on me, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. So we don't want to forget Gethsemane. In a very real sense, that's where the suffering started. And I'm praying, and have prayed already, that God will use this message cause us to enter into the observance of the Lord's table more meaningfully, more spiritually, more lasting value. We'll take in the account as it's given in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, beginning in verse number 30. And when they'd sung a hymn, probably one of the Hallels in the Hebrew Bible, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. John chapter 16, verses 31 and 32 form a companion text, or at least emphasize this aspect of Christ's loneliness. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, his disciples said, Do ye now believe? Verse 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own. And that happened. 
right after this, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. We're on holy ground this morning. I don't apologize for saying that. This scene took place in Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane means? It means olive press. What an appropriate place for Jesus to agonize and be pressed out of measure and sweat great drops of blood in the place where the olives were pressed. And there he came to the full realization that he was about to bear the dreadful curse due to sinners. In the garden, all hell was distilled in that cup that he asked to be removed from him. But the factor that aggravated his suffering the most was that in the hour of his deepest distress, he comes to those dearest to him and finds them asleep. Oh, how pathetic in the true sense of the word, not in the way we use that word, but how pathetic was his appeal, watch with me. What could ye not watch with me? Just one hour. When Jesus most needed the fellowship of his own, they were no good to him. And he had to suffer alone. So we're talking about the loneliness of Christ. Let's follow Jesus into dark Gethsemane and reverently ask, why? Not only why did he agonize, but why were his own seemingly so callous? Could that be us? Could that be me? It seems that Jesus' entire life was characterized by loneliness. Interestingly enough, in a messianic psalm, the 102nd psalm, in verses 6 and 7, his loneliness was prophesied in an interesting way with a triple analogy. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I'm like a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Is there anything about that that catches your attention? All of those birds are out of their place. The pelican is generally a water bird. It's not native to the wilderness. The owl doesn't belong in the desert. It's in the forest. The sparrow is a social bird. It's not often found alone. It's not on the housetop unprotected. And yet, what a wonderful analogy for Jesus left vulnerable, unprotected, out of his element in Gethsemane. And for that matter, his whole life. His loneliness was foreshadowed in his life. He was rejected at his birth. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. There was no room for him in the inn in Bethlehem. He was misunderstood and, in a sense, alienated even from his own parents in his youth. At 12 years of age, they finally found him back at the temple where they left him and gone a whole day's journey and not even missing him. When they finally catch up with him, he asks the question, 
Wished ye not, knew ye not that I must be about my father's business? Even Mary and Joseph could not go with Jesus into the realm of following the perfect will of his true father, his heavenly father. His own brothers and sisters didn't believe on him. Back in Nazareth, they said, go do your miracles somewhere else. Ostracized by his own family. His disciples, his friends doubted him and denied him. I'm saying this loneliness started a long time before Gethsemane. Jesus lived and died alone. He wasn't literally alone upon the cross, but he, he was lonely in an acute spiritual sense. There were a few loved ones gathered at the foot of the cross, and yet they could offer him no relief. Probably, I don't know if you thought about this, but probably the dying thief, the repentant thief at his side was the boldest in defending Jesus at his death. By saying to his fellow malefactor, this man hath done nothing amiss. We're getting our just desserts. Yes, Jesus lived a lonely life. And here in the veils of dark Gethsemane, the winepress, this loneliness came to a head. But I hasten to tell you, I'm not preaching this message to get us to feel sorry for Jesus. Christ in Gethsemane should not elicit our pity, but it should strengthen our love. And with that in mind, let's meditate upon His loneliness. Usually I have at least three points to a message because of the Lord's table today. It's just two, all right? Consider with me, first of all, the apathy he endured, and then finally the sympathy he craved. The apathy Jesus endured. This is what gave such a sharp edge to his physical and spiritual suffering. It was the fact that he was alone. He had himself had predicted it. As we read from John chapter 16, verse 31, Jesus saith unto his disciples, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, it's prophesied, I will smite the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep shall be scattered, his disciples. The wording of uh, John 16, 31 is especially convicting. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and is now come that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, Jesus said. Jesus looked around him, and there was none to stand by him. He had to contend against his accusers, all the lies, all the false witness, without a single witness in his favor. Judas had already gone out to do his dastardly deed, but even the eleven that remained, though they were not hypocrites, they were weak. They would all leave him, preoccupied with saving their own hide. They were scared to death. And oh, how it must have lacerated the heart of the Savior to see even His choicest disciples sleeping while He was agonizing. It wasn't just Peter that said, though all men should desert thee, yet not I, you know. No, all of them said that, we just read. They all boasted with Peter they would never leave Him. They would never deny Him. They would die with Him, but they didn't know their own hearts, and we know not what manner of spirit we are of. And so Jesus 
bore it all alone, as we sang a moment ago. In his hour of greatest need, those closest to him were AWOL. Let's not be too hard on them. Even Peter, James, and John, that inner circle, the bodyguard, there were reasons they were exhausted. They were emotionally depleted. It was sorrow of heart that had gripped them, the Bible says. Jesus knew that. So they fell asleep. So the obvious reason, the superficial reason, is they were tired. Verse 43, he came and found them asleep again, Matthew 26, for their eyes were heavy. They'd been through a lot. There was a reason they were having deep sorrow of heart. Jesus had just told them that he was about to die. Even though he'd said that earlier, they didn't get it. Then he had told them that one from among their ranks would be so wicked as to betray him. And they didn't know but what it was one of them. They didn't say, is it Judas? They said, is it I? And on top of that, Jesus said, I'm about to leave you. I'm going to go back to heaven. They were gripped. They were paralyzed with sorrow of heart. Nature can only take so much. It was a fatigue exacerbated by sorrow and fear. They were not all traitors, but for a time they were all cowards. All of them. They were surprised like a flock of sheep confronted with a lone wolf. Eventually they rallied and mustered enough courage to follow him from afar off and, and observe what was done to him. By the way, we need to mention the fact that though the eleven were tired and asleep, there was one who was not asleep, Judas. He was very much awake. He was active. He was awake enough to sell his master and to act as a guide to those who came to capture him, betraying the one that he claimed to love with a kiss. I say this was the superficial reason, this was the obvious reason that Jesus was alone in Gethsemane, but I submit to you that it was only a superficial reason. Jesus had a God had a far deeper purpose for Christ being made to suffer, bleed, and die alone. It's a twofold reason. The real reason, I like what Spurgeon said 130 years ago in a sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where God used him so signally for perennial revival. Spurgeon said this, there was a deeper reason, however, for the Savior's loneliness. It was a condition of his sufferings that he should be forsaken. Desertion was a necessary ingredient in that cup of vicarious suffering which he had covenanted to drink for us. We deserve to be forsaken, and therefore he must be. Since our sins against man as well as our sins against God deserve that we should be forsaken of man, he, bearing our sins against God and man, is forsaken, end of quote. Could I submit two things about that matter, the real reason? First of all, only Jesus could pay the price for our sin. Well has the hymn writer written, we've all sung it, could my tears forever flow, could my zeal no languor know, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, 
and thou alone. No other suffering could be efficacious. Other men have been crucified. Other men have been tortured, women, children, horrific deaths. But none of that suffering is efficacious, only Christ. And the Bible says that he had to suffer alone. In the book of Revelation, we, chapter 19, verse 15, we read these words, that Jesus had to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What was that referring to? What Old Testament verse? I want you to see the Old Testament basis for that. Tremendous quote, and it is found in Isaiah 63, verse 3. Isaiah 63, verse 3. Would you turn there quickly? Keep your finger there. Matthew 26. Here's, here's what the reference found in Revelation 19. Verse 3. I have trodden the winepress. What's the next word, class? Alone. Alone. And of the people there was none with me. We'll stop right there. That's the end of the context of that. And God the Father didn't let up a little bit. He didn't mitigate His wrath because it was His own beloved Son in the garden and on the cross. Oh no, the Apostle said it so well in in Romans 8, 32, He spared not. He spared not His own Son. The full brunt of His wrath fell on Jesus so that you could be spared and I could be spared. He spared not His own Son but delivered him up for us all. How then with him shall he not also freely give us all things? Only Jesus could pay the price for our sin, but secondly, only he was willing to pay the price for our sin. Thank God that he was willing. We talked about that this morning. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Those words are ascribed to Jesus from Psalm 40 in the book of Hebrews. Most of us have heard the song, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free from the cross, but no, that's not really accurate. It's easier to remember, but the Bible says he could have called 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. He could have had his disciples use the swords that he told them to take to deliver him, but he didn't. He didn't resort to either swords or angels to spare him from the suffering and the dying that was so needful in the sinner's place. I would call your attention to a little phrase in verse 39 that's often overlooked, Matthew 26. As he's agonizing or as he goes to the innermost recesses of the garden, it says, and he went a little further or a little farther, some translations spell it. He went a little farther. That speaks to my heart. That grips me as I think of Christ's loneliness. He went further than any other man in suffering in the infinity of his being and in the holiness, his absolute holiness. There are several glaring examples of this. He went further than us, than we, I should say, in love. He laid down his life not just for his friends but for his enemies. We have men of valor that we praise, as we did even on Memorial Day, of the fallen dead, the real heroes. But they died for their countrymen. 
Jesus died for his enemies. He didn't fight against them. He died for them. Romans 5, 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know what? He has the right to expect the same of us as we learned recently in studying from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 44. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You say, that's impossible. No, it's not. Jesus did it. He's blazed the trail. We have the mind of Christ, and that's what sets Christianity apart. He went further than anybody else in love. He goes a little further than we in obedience. That marvelous kenosis passage in Philippians 2, don't turn there, but I'll just quote from it. Paul said that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, it is in connection with this that he learned obedience. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and a reference is made in the previous verse, verse 7, to Gethsemane, his agony in Gethsemane. He went further than we in love. He went further than we in obedience. He goes further than we do in prayer. The Bible says that Jesus would spend a whole night in prayer out on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee or in the wilderness What was he doing when he sweat great drops of blood in the garden? He was praying. I say this sincerely. I don't say this to be dramatic or certainly not in mock piety, but the next time you feel a little discomfort because of kneeling too long or you experience the headaches and fatigue with intense praying or even fasting, just remember this. My Savior sweat drops of blood for me. That'll help you. He went further than we do and have in sorrow. It was prophesied of him in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You've heard me say it so many times, and I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer party pooper, but we never read that Jesus laughed. I'm sure he did. We never read that he smiled. I'm sure he did. But we do read that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In his infinitely holy being, he felt more keenly the sting of being made a curse for sin than you or I could possibly feel. And the writer to the Hebrews declares in chapter 12, verse 4, ye have not yet resisted unto blood in your striving against sin, but Jesus did. Anybody been shot and then recovered because of your testimony for Christ? Anybody? Anybody been stabbed and bled for a while because you bore witness truthfully to your Savior? Anybody? I told you about the little boy that donated blood for the first time to help his sick brother. 
And as it was being collected in vials, he said to the phlebotomist, when do I die? Nobody told him he didn't have to die. He was willing to die for his brother to save him. But I submit to you, not only was Jesus willing to do it, he actually did it. He submitted to the bloodletting till his body was trained. The loneliness already experienced in the garden reached its zenith, its climax on the cross. As it wrung from him the saddest cry the world has ever heard, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was bad enough to be forsaken by his disciples in his hour of need, but he was alienated from his own father. And yet he was not alone. He could still say, my God. I want you to see, secondly, the sympathy he craved. He went further than we not only in the garden, but in all these things I mentioned. But look at the sympathy he craved. I'll be honest, if this doesn't melt our hearts, then I'm not sure we have a heart. It might be a stone. Look at verse 40. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? What was our Savior experiencing at that moment? I, don't, I think we catch a sense of the pathos of it. He could not bear to be alone. He needed his disciples. Yes, we say that reverently. We realize in his humanity he craved their sympathy. No doubt he did it without chiding them. But you could detect a tone of disappointment, loving rebuke. As he said in another place, or even right here, he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, how tender he was. Oh, how understanding. He knew they were sleeping for sorrow. But when he needed them the most, they weren't there for him. He didn't ask them to defend him. He didn't ask them to deliver him with those swords that he'd given them. All he asked them to do was watch pray with me. May I remind you that Christ was both fully God and fully man. As God, He's self-sufficient. That's one of His attributes. He doesn't need anything. We read that in Acts 17, verse 25. In the book of Psalms, the 50th Psalm, verse 12, it says, if God were hungry, He wouldn't tell us. Because the world is His, and all the fullness thereof, he's self-sufficient as God. But here in his humanity, Jesus was lonely. And he did tell his disciples that. What a marvelous example of the mysterious union of the two natures in Christ. The fact that he craved, he actually needed the sympathy of his own he was reaching out for another human heart to, to understand, to feel what he felt, to watch with him, if only for one hour, and that hour being the darkest hour of his life. But in his hour of greatest need, the, the eleven were no good to him. 
Within a few moments, literally, they would all forsake him and flee, the Bible says. You say, even John? Yeah, John. Where was John? The man that leaned upon Jesus' breast, the disciple whom Jesus loved, surely he would not desert his master. Surely he would say a word in defense of his dear friend, but no. John is gone with the rest. And although he remains at the foot of the cross at the last, yet even he cannot defend him. Jesus is all alone, all alone. He feels it intensely. How does he respond? Does he cry out in self-pity? No. Is he dismayed? No. As we read in John chapter 16, verse 32, his disciples, he said, ye shall leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. That was enough. And I hope God is enough for us too, because there will come times in our life when those we think better of will forsake us. And if it's not enough to have God with you, you'll do what your sinful nature tells you to do. That he should in any way need me, I cannot understand. That I need him, I I certainly understand, for in him I live and move and have my being. He holds my very breath in his hand but that he should need us. Oh, how can we sleep when Jesus is in agony? How can we be so callous that he still needs us to suffer with him? Jesus is no longer here on this earth in bodily form. He's no longer in humiliation He's been exalted, glorified to the right hand of the Father. But did you know something? Even at the right hand of the Father, He still suffers with and for His own. Oh, I hope that'll grip our hearts. As Saul of Tarsus was going after Christians to hail them, to have them arrested and brought back for trial, and if he had anything to do with it, to have them executed, going to the city of Damascus, Jesus reveals himself from heaven with these words when, when, when Saul asked, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Do you get that? In persecuting the body of Christ, he was persecuting the head. And so this foremost persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, became the great apostle Paul, and he writes to his spiritual children, and he urges them to enter into the privilege of suffering with Christ. What a privilege it is. We don't enjoy this kind of preaching. I don't. I doubt that you do either. In America, we've got it made. If somebody cuts us off or does road rage, that's about the most persecution we expect to have. But in Philippians 1 verse 29, it says this, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And to the Colossians, he writes in chapter 1 verse 24 of of, of his epistle to Colossae, and he says, 
I want you to fill up that which is lacking, that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ for His body's sake, which is the church. If that weren't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. How can we complete the sufferings of Christ? But that verse says we can. Certainly we cannot suffer as He did in the sense of atoning for sin or expiating sin. But Jesus today, as in Gethsemane, reaches out to us, His body, and He says, will you watch with me? Will you watch with me for souls? Will you agonize over their sin? Will you travail with me to give birth to them into the kingdom of God? Will you enter into my passion? The principle is not changed. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. My little children of whom I travail in birth Again, Paul said in Galatians, till Christ be formed in you. Have we learned anything from the failure of the 11 disciples in Gethsemane? Why is it we don't have the altar filled with people bawling out their hearts and asking others to do the same for their lost loved ones that are under the dominion and tyranny of Satan? And unless something changes, they're going to go to hell! we even talk about it, we get accused of being fanatical and sensational. One of these days it will be seen by the whole world that God the Father did not leave His Son alone. As we read in Thessalonians, when He shall come in the glory of His Father with His holy angels with Him to do what? To receive us unto Himself. And so fortified by that assurance, and what a tremendous promise it is, shall we not say in sincerity and in dependence upon the Holy Spirit what Peter misspoke in his ignorance and vain confidence in his flesh? Shall we not say, though all men should be offended of thee, Lord, yet will not I. I'll go with you all the way. In just a moment, we'll stand and sing that. That familiar song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And think of those, that stanza that says, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Precious Lord, help us not to feel sorry for you. You don't need our pity. We sure need yours. You are exalted above all principality and power and every threat of Satan. You've died once and you won't have to die again. The devil cannot touch you now. But thank you that we can touch you. And thank you that you give us the privilege of bearing your cross, of suffering with and for you, till your elect are safely gathered in. Oh, Father, forgive us for being so cowardly and ashamed of Jesus. May we be willing to bear his cross, even if it means we, bear it, we carry it alone.
sanctify this ordinance to our hearts now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.